Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us on tonight's program. I actually explained to you why I bought more Tyro shares this week, despite the fact that the share price was absolutely clobbered. We've got Marcus Bogdan from Blackmore Capital, and he also runs the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. On the stocks he's bought, because of reporting, Susan, the ones he's added to the fund. We've got Michael Knox on where the Australian dollar's going to go. Really important for people who are investing overseas. We've got Ying Yi and Cheng from Coolabar Capital talking about when interest rates will rise in Australia, how many rate rises we should see. And finally, Paul Ricard of the Switzer Report looks at Appen that reported uh, today, as well as other tech stocks and payment companies. Why are they being smashed? That's the show. So let's kick off with me talking about why I bought Tyro this week. Hi there, I'd like to explain why I bought more Tyro this week, despite the CEO, Robbie Cook, not being available to come on the show to tell us what in the hell is going on. In case you missed it, the company reported this week, and this has what has actually happened to the share price. Tyro's payments for five days is a chart on screen right now. Now, it lost about 30% this week, but the company has been struggling since October last year. Have a look at this next chart. This is Tyro over the past five years, but you can see since October, the share price really has tumbled from about $4 down to $1.48. So what's happened? Let's have a look at the tech stock index called the NASDAQ, where the US's famous tech stocks actually live. That's on screen right now. And and as you can see, tech stocks have been falling since January. And this doesn't help a company like Tyro, which is not only a payments company, but is also a tech company. You can see there that tech stocks have really copped it. So that's the tech stock sell-off effect. But what about the payment sector? Let's check out the world's most famous payments business, namely PayPal. Now this was a 380 US dollar stock in August last year and was 268 in October, but now wait for it, it's $100. It's down 63% since October. And guess what Tyro's down? 63%, Afterpay's down 59% and Zip is off 64%. Do you see a pattern? Payments companies are out of favour. So are tech companies. And that's why the likes of Tyro are being smashed. So the big question is, will it last? Why should we buy these payments companies anyway? Buy if you can wait for a re-rating of payments companies. Buy if you think the fund managers of the world that heavily influence stocks prices will one day say, hey, these good companies that were overpriced, but they now look like they're underpriced. Buy if you think a company like Tyro will benefit from the reopening of the economy, the return to normal life, the arrival of tourists who go to pubs and cafes where Tyro's machines are used. Also, buy if you like knowing that Mike Cannon-Brooks owns 13% of this company, but don't take my word or don't just take the fact that Mike Cannon-Brook owns a whole chunk of Tyro. Have a look at what all the experts are saying on FN Arena. These are the guys who serve companies all the time, have a look at the chart that's on screen right now. But don't take my word for it or Mike Cannonbrook's holdings to pun on Tyro. Let's just see what the expert analysts think about the company going forward. The consensus average rise for Tyro's share price is, wait for it, 98%. But let's look at the individual calls. You can see this on the table right in front of you. 
Have a look at that. Morgan's thing is going to be an 81% rise. Macquarie, 45% rise. Morgan Stanley, wait for 217%. And Albanet, 102%. Even if these guys are only half right, that's not going to be a bad rise. So a lot of people think Tyro has a future. So it's not just me talking through uh, my hat or through my wallet. And that's part of the reason why I was just prepared to have another crack at it. Though I do believe it's going to take time for the Tyro share price to improve, that's for sure. So finally, looking at these calls, I'm happy to remain a believer in Tyro as a company. And I will take the tip that Warren Buffett gave all of us, to be greedy when others are fearful. I'm a patient investor who likes to buy good companies when the market beats up on a sector that one day I think will be re-loved again. But I do hope this re-loving comes sometime this year. I'll keep trying to get the CEO of Tyro, Robbie Cook, for the show ASAP. Stay tuned. Well, we're catching up with Marcus Bogdan, the fund manager of the Switzerland Dividend Growth Fund and of Blackmore Capital. Marcus, great to see you. True to be here, Peter. This is an exciting time for you, isn't it? Reporting season. Someone like you, it's like grand final time for an AFL supporter. It's the time of the year where we relish yeah. uh, and the reporting season so far has been better than expected. Mm. When we're sitting in early January in the midst of Omicron, um, I was concerned around uh, but just the trajectory of earnings. Mm. But earnings broadly have been better than expected mm. and that's been primarily driven by commodities uh, and financials. Mm. But what's really interesting, Marcus, is that this is for the six months going from July 1 to December um, 31. And there was a whole lot of lockdowns in there as mm -hmm. well. Then we got uh, an escape probably mm -hmm. over October, November. Then December, Omicron comes. So for companies to report well, that's a very good sign, isn't it? Extraordinary. And we've, yeah, you're right, we've had a lot of false dawns and a mm -hmm. lot of false starts. Uh, and they have reported, I mean, it's companies like Endeavour where, you know, 40% of their hotels were in lockdown over mm. uh, a three-month period in time. Uh, but they've generated higher sales revenue and the mixes there have been better than anticipated ac mm. across, the, across the board. Okay. This is a little fact that I bet you you didn't come across. And I know you pour over financial facts like mm. I do, but this one quite shocked me. Israel is apparently a very good forward indicator for the US economy. Didn't know that. Right, right, right yeah. And the December quarter in Israel was a 16% spike in economic growth. Okay. And, I, and when I read that, I thought, well, I've been saying that in the second half of this year, when we yes. get over Omicron, we're going to see a really big economic rebound. Yes. Are you feeling that, provided we don't get another Omicron type challenge to economies, there is going to be a massive economic rebound. Yeah, there's certainly those challenges that we know that are out there mm -hmm. and obviously there's always that um, persistence there that another variant can come along. But we're looking at the numbers, the, the facts that a company's reporting, GDP is stronger than anticipated, employment is stronger. Uh, and we've also seen that when we've come out of these lockdowns, there has been a sharp rebound. Mm. Uh, and there's evidence of that coming. There's also evidence that the supply constraints that we've had in the economy are certainly not 
getting any worse, and we're seeing you know um, fewer issues around Omicron around absenteeism as well. Okay, because you're a, a fun kind of money guy, let me share another really interesting mm -hmm. observation I picked up this morning that. Uh, this, this U.S. analyst was saying, because of the of the virus, we're buying a greater proportion of products compared to services than we do when it's normal. Mm -hmm. And the classic example is we can't fly fly overseas, so what did yes. we do? We went to JB Hi-Fi and yes. Harvey Norman and bought stuff. Yeah. But once we can fly again, once we can move around our country even again, we'll start buying more services, and we'll buy less products. And there could be a whole lot of inventory. And what do stores do when they have too much inventory? They cut prices. So they that could be another reason why inflation could come, come down over the course of this year and next. Yes. And, and look, and economic forecasting has been incredibly problematic. Yeah. And we talked about this before. Six months ago in the US, there was no prospect of an interest rate rise in the US mm. in 2022. Today companies like Goldman Sachs are suggesting there could be between five and seven. Yeah. So we really just look at the underlying earnings uh, of the companies and what the companies are saying to give us an indication of what's, what's occurring. All right, so that's the interesting stuff that money type people like you and me like, like to talk. Mm -hmm. People watching this want to know what, as a consequence of this reporting season, what new companies have you added to the fund and what companies have you added to because you were really impressed with what you saw. Okay, so we're getting to the back end of reporting season now. Mm. Um, there are a number of companies that we've got on our watch list of potential new companies to come into the portfolio and those companies that we're looking to add to. Mm. So, so far we haven't made any additions or deletions in the portfolio. Mm. We did put NAB in before their result yep. uh, and that was quite good because mm. that was a result that was better than expected. So Are you expecting the banks to keep on doing well? Well, um, it's you've got to look at the individual names. I think CBA, mm. which we've got in the portfolio, and NAB mm. are growing above system. And that's another reason why we're confident around the economy, because mm. we're seeing very strong lending growth, very mm. strong deposit growth, yeah. and a very benign environment for, for credit. Yeah. But companies like Macquarie, we're keeping a very close eye on, uh, which moves up and down with the market. But I think longer term, as they're pivoting that business toward green infrastructure, I think that there is a, a long uh, pathway there for, the, for them to benefit yeah. from that. And they're also pushing themselves into lending to normal people, aren't they? A lot of their ads are sh sort of trying to go into it. And they were there many years ago and they yes. kind of got out yeah. of it. Yeah. So it's just another little string they're adding yes. to their bow. All right, so what about um, companies that have, have impressed you that you might be considering adding to the portfolio? Um, so there, there's um, com companies that are in particularly in insurance or mm. insurance brokers, companies mm. like Steadfast. Yeah. Uh, Seek is another e example where it's a far more em employment. Yeah. But they're more growth-orientated companies. Yeah. Growth uh, has traded at a very significant premium to the market. But what we're watching now is a compression of those valuations. And mm. so 
once we believe that those valuations have compressed enough yeah. and the underlying you business might model, upon them. Um, we might then look to, to move into those. And so yeah. SEEK is a, is a good example. Because your, your fund primarily likes to get great dividend pays, but if you see opportunities for growth, because there's good value at the moment, you will at least get into it for a time yes. and benefit from the, yes, the growth. Yes, absolutely. And remembering investors' returns. And CSL's a case yeah, in point, yeah. isn't it? And investors' returns in two parts. It's both capital growth and dividend growth. Mm. And, what, and why earnings are so important is they are a reflection of the dividend. So mm. if earnings are growing, then um, ultimately you'll see growth in dividends. And we're seeing growth in dividends, which is higher than the inflation rate, which is, which is terrific. Okay. One last question. Um, I, I read something um, brilliant on Monday, which I actually wrote uh, in the Switzerland report. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I made the point that in October or so last year, um, from my, my reading of a lot of analysts and, and talking to people like you, it seemed apparent that three areas were going to do well, and that was financials, miners, and energy. Mm -hmm. And they, they've done really well. We've seen mm -hmm. BHP go from about 35 up to yep. 45 or whatever. Yep. So there's been a nice rebound there. And my argument in, in the Switch Report on Monday was these will probably still keep doing well, but the gains are going to get smaller and smaller because the big ones have been had. Mm -hmm. But if you want to get big long-term gains, big gains, you might have to wait. And so mm -hmm. some tech stocks that have been beaten up, eventually, I suspect, will make a comeback. Yes. Is there, a, is there a tech stock that you, well, I guess you mentioned Seek, which is mm -hmm. a tech stock. Mm -hmm. Is there a tech stock that you've considered one day you might add to the fund to get some growth? Yeah, um, there, there are a couple. Um, one is Xero, mm -hmm. uh, which is the digital accounting group. Yep. Uh, we've previously had them in the, in the fund yep. uh, and we sold them because the valuation was excessive. Yeah. Uh, and so they, were, they got to $150. Mm. Uh, earlier this week, they were back at 98 mm. uh, So that is one that we like because it's a subscription business. Yep. Um, it's um, small businesses are regulated to, to put their tax returns in digitally. Yeah. Uh, and they're a global business as mm. well. So that is, that is one also. Mm. But I'd also point to the fact that there have been big sectors in the economy which have been laggards in the, in the benchmark. And now you're going to say healthcare. Uh, yeah, well, healthcare is one, and yeah. I'm not going to repeat that one. But consumer staples has been one yeah. which has really struggled. Mm. Uh, and obviously, Coles and Woolworths, we've got in the portfolio, mm. uh, they've delivered results which were better than expected. Yeah. And they are now starting to see some of the cost pressures ease. Uh, and then they're also a beneficiary of higher inflation as well. Okay, thanks, Marcus. Terrific. Thanks, Peter. That's Marcus Bogdan, a guy who looks at stocks 24-7. He's got nothing else in his life, the poor guy. But still, it's worth talking to. My next guest is Michael Knox, Chief Economist at Morgan's, and I always like to catch up with Michael to see where he thinks the dollar's going, where interest rates might be heading, and will we see a really big economic rebound this year? Michael, great to see you. Good to see you, Peter. Okay, let's not muck around with pleasantries. Let's get straight to the, the really important matters. The Aussie, <laughs> the Aussie dollar. What's your, your forecast for 2022 and the Aussie dollar? Well, uh, we're going through a US dollar bubble. Uh, you have a model of uh, the Aussie dollar, which is uh, uh, the standard model. 
uh, exposed to prices and interest rates, relative interest rates. And uh, like uh, all models like that, the uh, is the commodity prices have gone up uh, currently in US dollar terms. Uh, the RBA index of export prices is 54% higher than it was uh, for the average of uh, 19 and 20. Uh, but the uh, Aussie dollar is um, uh, trading water or, uh, or even uh, drifting down. And uh, the Aussie dollar extremely undervalued. Uh, three standard there is undervalued in terms. Why is that happening? Um, well, I think there's, uh, that there's a there's two things that seem to be happening at the moment. Firstly, uh, that if I, I uh, take notice of uh, uh, people like Raghu Rajan, uh, who was the chief economist of the IMF, who forecast a financial crisis and then became uh, the governor of the um, uh, Bank of India, and people like Mervyn King, who was the person who uh, uh, began QE as uh, governor of uh, the Royal Bank of England. Uh, both of those people have said recently that real yields on US Treasury bonds are far too low and that they think that that uh, uh, is an extraordinary event. Uh, that given where inflation is, what's interesting is that uh, US bond yields have yet to respond. Uh, and that suggests to me that uh, there has been aggressive uh, buying of uh, US treasuries, and that has got to the point where it is a bubble uh, in US treasuries, or a generated a bubble in the US dollar. And so you've got this exceptionally high value uh, of uh, the US dollar at a time when uh, increasing inflation uh, suggests that, that this, this could be this put this high dollar at risk. Uh, the person who's done the best analysis of this phenomenon is uh, Ricardo Ries. Right? Ricardo Ries uh, is a European economist who's uh, done a lot of work in the US, but is now back at the London School of Economics, which is where he did his, uh, uh, did his first degree. And he's done a, a couple of presentations recently. Uh, one was uh, called... Uh, is an inflation data, uh, an inflation disaster around the corner. Uh, when he did that on the 22nd of October with the Paris School of Economics. And he's done another one on uh, uh, February the 17th, 22, uh, with uh, Princeton uh, in the US. And this is uh, with a person called uh, Mark. Uh, and in both of these, what he says is that. Uh, uh, expectations of uh, where inflation is going to be over the next five years in uh, US Treasury bonds is increasing, but has not and is certainly increasing relative to um, the inflationary expectations for Euro area bonds. Um, he expects that this will get to a point uh, where there will be a sell-off in US Treasuries relative to Euro area bonds, and that will generate a fall in the US dollar. But we've yet to get to that point. So the short answer of, of this is, is that there's a bubble in the US dollar uh, because uh, the market is buying US Treasury bonds on yield, but are currently not taking uh, enough attention of the inflationary risk uh, 
as they become increasingly aware of the long-term inflationary risk, what will happen is they'll start selling those US treasuries and the US dollar will go down. But until that occurs, what we've got is a bubble in the US dollar, right. uh, which is uh, not just making the Australian dollar too low, it's making everything else too low relative uh, to the US dollar. Okay, so let's move. So, so therefore, <clears throat> eventually you think the US dollar falls and the A dollar will, will rise. Is that, is, is that just a yes or no? Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. So, so it takes some time. It will take yeah. some time to work through this process. Yeah. So, if we get a very big economic rebound in the second half of this year, on the basis that there are no more omicrons, we learn how to live with the virus, and there is big a big economic rebound. What do you think that will do to the A dollar? versus the US dollar? Well, I think there's two different things. I think you've got uh, the real level of activity uh, and activity is very strong. Uh, US growth to be about four and a half percent or better in the second half of the year and Australian growth the same. Yeah. After all, we've got uh, the highest terms of trade in Australia now since uh, the previous uh, resources boom. Mm. And that generates uh, high growth in incomes in Australia, high growth in demand. And we've got this, uh, as we say, that the uh, uh, Aussie dollar has yet to uh, respond to the extremely high commodity prices. So this is generating high levels of income in Australia. So this is one of the best times uh, in our lifetime for the Australian, uh, for the Australian economy. Yeah. Uh, and for uh, of Australian companies. So, so Noxie, uh, let's go to the, the calls out there that the US will raise interest rates. Like some, some people think there'll be 10 rises this year. I don't know how you get 10 rises this year, but, um, but how many rises do you think the Fed's going to embrace this year? How many interest rate rises? Uh, well, they've also said they're going to do two things. They're going to start reducing the size of the balance sheet uh, yeah. and they're going to uh, increase rates. And they haven't told us yet what the um, uh, reduction in the balance sheet is because uh, they haven't worked it out yet. But I think what's going to be happening over the next three years is that they're going to be raising rates and reducing the size of the balance sheet at hmm. the same time. Okay. And uh, I think the result of that is that the number of rate hikes that's required will be less than the market necessarily believes. Um, They've said that they'll get uh, rates up to 250 basis points after three years. Um, uh, there's uh, 10 rate hikes over three years. And that's what we, we think they'll do. Yep. Uh, but a lot of tightening will happen because they're running down the balance sheet at the same time. Okay. So yeah. that's, uh, that's the reason for the limited upside. Uh, yeah. In, yeah. Uh, in Which makes perfect sense. What about in Australia? When do you think um, good old Dr. Phil will start raising interest rates. Oh, he hates being called Dr. Phil because Dr. Phil is somebody on TV. Yeah, um, I, I love Dr. Uh, Phil. Mr. Philip Lowe, oh, PhD. Now, I love, I love both Dr. Phil's. Magellan. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well, I think Mr. Philip Lowe, PhD, has pointed out that inflation in Australia is half the size of the, the US. And the reason I think that that's happened is because our budget deficit was half the size of it. Well, that's reasonable. And therefore, he thinks 
ride increases will be lower than in the U.S. So yeah. uh, I think he's going to watch uh, the Fed hike rates uh, at least twice before he decides uh, uh, it's time for him to start putting up rates. So I don't expect uh, any increase in the Australian cash rate before the end of the year. And uh, given that, as I say, inflation is half as high here as it is there, uh, then we go up, then rates will go up more slowly. But uh, of course, because inflation is lower um, in Australia, the, re- the, 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 the Australian dollar is actually cheaper because of this purchasing power parity thing. Yeah. Um, so that still supports, you don't need the same number of rate hikes to support the same increase in the level of the Australian dollar, yeah, um, because um, our inflation is low. All right, mate. Well, fantastic. Great to talk to you, um, and I I take my hat off for you to you for your defence of Dr. Phil Lowe, um, PhD. But he'll always Mr. be Philip Lowe, PhD. But he'll always be Dr. Phil to me. Great, great to talk to you, mate. We'll catch up in a month's time. Cheers. Great to talk to you. <laughs> Cheers, mate. We're catching up now with Ying Yi and Chen from Coolabar Capital, and the subject is her favourite. It's what she s- sleeps and thinks about 24-7, interest rates. Ying Yi, how are you? Hi, Peter. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> well, it makes you an unbelievably exciting person to be continually preoccupied with something that's really important to the world of money, interest rates. True, true, true. It is very, very important and topical at the moment. Yeah, without a doubt. So I've got a whole pile of, I think, difficult questions, but people will be curious about what your business is thinking about because Coolabar specialises in bonds and bonds are driven by interest rates and what might happen. So let's just try and get the, the latest feeling from, from you guys. So the first question I've got is, how many rate rises are you guys expecting in the US this year? Yeah, I think, look, there's currently around seven sort of uh, rate hikes priced in. I, I think that's that's fair. That would imply that they would need to go at pretty much every every meeting uh, live. So um, I think that's realistic. Obviously, you know, um, our views around inflation are that the, the Fed is already behind the curve. So arguably, they probably should be doing more. Whether they do, you know, more than seven hikes this year is obviously questionable. The markets obviously, you know, jump to that sort of view quite quickly. Um, I mean, look, probably think that they should do, you know, 10 rate hikes, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the question of should and whether they will is obviously a very different one. This is one question I didn't. You know, um, suggest I might ask you, but you're so smart, you can handle it anyway. Um, <laughs> the, the, a potential very difficult situation, Ukraine, Russia and NATO allies, could that make the Fed hesitate to you know, put another negative in there for financial markets? Yeah, that's definitely a legitimate sort of a question. But I think the reasons for, you know, um, taking monetary policy away from 0% interest rates and super loose policy is related to inflation. And there's definitely an inflation problem. 
So the more that they delay hiking rates, the more, you know, of an inflation issue that they are creating down the track and, you know, the harder it is to stay on track of, um, you know, 0% interest rates is obviously the lowest as you can get, obviously without going to negative rates. But even if they were to hike to 0.25%, 0.5%, you know, 1%, that's still expansionary. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the, the really hard question. Will the first rate rise, which we we pretty well know it's going to be March, so the, the upcoming month, but will it be 0.25%, 0.5%, or as James Bullard, the uh, St. Louis um, president of the Fed, 1%? What's your best guess? Yeah, we're probably of the view that it's going to be 0.25%. I mean, 0.5% is definitely a risk, but if you look at the rhetoric coming out of um, other Fed members, um, it would point towards more like 0.25%. Yeah, okay. Me too. I agree with that. Well, let's go to our first rate rise here. What, what's Coolabar's what's best guess on when we'll see rates go up? Yeah, our core expectation is that we'll see the first rate hike in August. Um, obviously, there are you know people of you know different sort of views and camps. You know, some people are looking for May. Our view around the August rate hike is more so um, a couplefold. Um, the RBA is firstly you know quite keen on seeing you know several inflation prints or CPI prints before they make a decision around hiking interest rates. And then secondly, also, I think from a political perspective, um, you know, regardless of whether Labor or Liberal do come into power, hiking in May may be, you know, a bit too soon from a political perspective, even if the RBA is, you know, deemed to be independent, it probably wouldn't look good politically. Okay. Let's go to how many rate rises are you guys expecting in Australia this year? Yeah, good question. Probably just about two, two rate hikes this year out of the RBA. We have a very different inflation profile uh, versus the US. So obviously in the US, you know, uh, core inflation is running or core PCE, I should say, which is the Fed's preferred measure, is running around 4.7%. Wage inflation is around 4.7% as well. Whereas here, sure, we're like, you know, bit over 2%, um, which is within that sort of target range. And at the same time, wage inflation, which will get numbers out, um, you know, this week as well, that is running um, a bit over 2% as well. So definitely different profile. And they're obviously not in as much of a hurry versus the US. Have you thought about why US inflation is higher than Australian inflation? Well, we were already behind the curve in terms of inflation, I should say, not the RBA necessarily. So the RBA even heading into the pandemic was already undershooting its, um, you know, inflation um, objectives in terms of, you know, targeting 2 to 3% inflation. So we're coming from a very different base to begin with. Um, obviously, you know, over in the US, there's... Um, there's tightness in the labour market, whereas here, when we get, um, you know, we do have tightness in the labour market here as well. But you know, they definitely haven't had closed borders in that respect, and so we are expecting them to open our borders, um, as you know, and therefore that influx of you know immigrants and also international students will sort of help to moderate a bit of that wage inflation pressure. Mm. I, I've only just thought about this when I was listening to your as usual, brilliant answer. And I'm wondering whether JobKeeper actually has actually 
um, taken the pressure off wage demands because for lots of workers their wages didn't change over the course of um, the pandemic. But in the US where the market, labour market is far more flexible, they may have actually seen a lot of wage falls and now they're playing catch up. Yeah, but they did also have stimulus checks and JobKeeper obviously is not a, not around anymore. Um, but yes, initially JobKeeper was definitely very attractive. I mean, I definitely mm. had, had heard of anecdotes whereby people were getting paid more um, on JobKeeper than they traditionally would be yeah. in their normal job because they worked casually or they worked part-time, for example. So it definitely was a good measure from the government in terms of a, you know, an immediate blanket policy response, but it was you know, very blunt um, and it was far-reaching in that respect. In the US, there was obviously stimulus checks as well, you know, people going on unemployment benefits, but you also had people you know, come out of the labour force in the US as well, just you know, disenfranchised by, you know, like COVID and moving out of, you know, certain sort of industries around, you know, hospitality, et cetera, just because of the dangers associated with working in that industry, given the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, encouraging those people to come back is obviously, you know, there are people that are coming back, but then there are at the same time that people have just left, you know, permanently and maybe working in what they call the gig economy now. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Could be a great PhD paper, that one. Finally, let's go to, infl let's go to inflation. Um, do, you, do you think inflation in both the US and Australia will eventually prove to be temporary or though it might take longer for it to start to, to dissipate and fall? Or, or do you fear that there may well be a, a number of years of rising inflation? Yeah, well, this is... This is why central banks need to nip it in the bud, right? Because um, inflation expectations have been moving higher. So if you look at the US, um, you know, the University of Michigan surveys have inflation pointing to, you know, inflation expectations over the next sort of um, 12 months, um, you know, quite high. I think it's around, you know, a bit over 6%. Um, if we look at the New York Fed inflation expectations, they're around, you know, 4 point something percent over the next 12 months, over the next three years, people are expecting, you know, 3 point something percent. So, you know, as we know, when if we're expecting something, we're going to, you know, change our behaviour in line with that expectation. So if people are behaving in a way such that they expect higher prices in the future, then, you know, that can be self-fulfilling um, and that is a concern. So unless central banks, depending on, you know, their hiking profile and whether they nip this inflation problem, you know, sooner rather than later, will have a huge impact on these inflation expectations. So that's hugely important and that will impact you know how far reaching or how long this inflation will last um, at the same time look you know our view is that it isn't transitory sure there are supply chain constraints but you know in some ways you could argue that everything that you know could affect inflation or that is bad with respect to you know price profile has already happened um, but there could be you know potential issues down the line so we could have a wage price spiral that could perpetuate things. So things start costing more. So I demand higher wages, higher wages then feed through to the cost of goods and services. And then for it, we get that 
wage price spiral, which is obviously not desirable, hence why I mentioned that central banks need to nip it in the bud. Mm. And then secondly, you know, you, you also have the risk of other variants which could affect the supply chain down the track as well. Yeah, good point. One final one, and this is purely a vested interest question. You guys manage, mm. manage the Switzer High Yield Fund, but it's on a floating rate. So rising interest rates should be good for that fund? Yeah, it's, it's beneficial because in a floating rate fund, your interest rate is not fixed so because it's floating. Yeah. Um, so when, for example, if you have invested in a fixed rate fund, usually you've fixed your rate at a lower rate if interest rates are moving higher. So you don't benefit from that high yield or that high income um, that comes from the bond. Um, as you know, interest rates move higher, that benefits floating rate, you know, funds like yeah. the Switzer High Yield Fund because the underlying coupon or the income that's coming from the investments within that fund are going to be higher. Yeah, great. I'm glad that Chris talked me into it. Good on him. Okay, thanks for joining us, uh, Ying Yi. Thank you, Peter. And that's Ying Yi and Chen from Coolabar Capital. I'm catching up with Paul Rickard from the Switch Report just to see what he thought about Apple's report and tech stocks and payments companies that really have copped it this week, Paul. Well, Apple certainly copped it, Peter, and I guess probably one of the main reasons that Apple copped it is it declined to provide short-term guidance. Um, it had previously so we're provided still guidance. guessing with Apple going We're, we're still guessing with Apple, yeah. and it provided guidance about some targets about FY26, where oh, yeah, it was going to double revenues. That's five years away, right? What we want to know is what's going to happen in the next couple of years. Yeah. And it, it was sort of withdrew guidance, didn't like that. Um, and so always, when you've been providing numbers and forecasts and you take it away, the market is immediately suspicious. suspicious yeah. right? What haven't, aren't they telling us? Uh, costs are up a little bit. Uh, they said costs would be up in the, in the next half compared to this half as it, as it invests. Uh, your revenue growth was okay, but it's nothing shooting the lights out. And I think there's a lot of people, you, me, most analysts mm. have been a believer in this company. Yeah. And uh, eventually it just becomes too much. And I think today yeah. we saw it was a final. I, I guess a lot of us have thought that once the worst of this coronavirus is out of the way, this is a company that would benefit. But I guess the fact that it's lagged on could be one part of the problem. It's gone longer than what we were expected. But there's still, this company's not giving me a good feeling, Paul. And, you know, I'm a, I'm, I've got a small investment in it and I'm thinking to myself, am I going to keep sticking by it? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, we're all sort of believers in artificial intelligence. Yeah, we believe in this sort of company. I mean, this company actually makes money. It is mm. profitable. Yeah. It produces a dollar. It pays a dividend. Mm. Um, but, you know, for a company that was in its 40s, I think it got to about $44, yeah. $45. To see it down today around 650 you know, is mm. a bit of a disgrace. And yeah. I think it's sort of the capitulation. Where it goes to now, there's, there's got to be some value there somewhere, right? Okay. But uh, yeah, yeah. This, I think we were all hoping that it bottomed yeah. before today. And, um, you know, we saw it, it didn't. Yeah. And, um, We've ended and up, we're ended up on our bottoms. We're ended up on our bottoms, Pete. <laughs> Let's go to finally payments companies. They've really copped it. Tyro's copped it, Zip's copped it, Afterpay. All these companies are being smashed. Paul, what do you think's behind it? Is there something structurally wrong with them? Or is it something that is just big fund managers have got out of this space and they're chasing other sectors? No, look, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong, Peter. I mean, this. When you say you've copped it, this is a global trend, right? Yeah. And uh, you look at the, the payment leaders, your so-called PayPal's, 
uh, your what's now Square Orders Now Block, yeah. right? Which yeah. full cap Afterpay. These companies are both down 60, 65% in the last 12 months. Mm. Uh, and so we have seen a, a de-rating of the whole sector. Mm. Um, every payments company has been hit. Um, put it down to it. I think it all got hyped up a bit too much in the first place. So we yeah. always warn about the hype cycle. You yeah. know, you never yeah. know how long it's going to go. And there's more competitors too. Aren't more there? competitors. Yeah. Um, it's. A, I think it'll come back, but it's. It's sort of. We've seen a global derating. It then got caught up in the tech sell-off. This actually started more like back in about November. Yeah, October. Yeah, November, it's yeah. got caught up in the tech sell-off, and it's just been, I think, you know, something that the Australian companies aren't strong enough to yeah. uh, withstand those international. So trends. it's going to be a matter of faith, Paul. But you do suspect that they eventually will make I, a bit I, of a comeback. I, I think there'll be a comeback, but I don't expect. I don't think you suddenly go from we don't love, yeah, sort of in love. You go to out of love, and mm. then it's hard to get back in love again. So it, it, it's going to have to do some work, Pete. Yeah, okay. uh, but you can't, uh, whereas you can pick the candidates in Australia, you've got to be look at what's going on overseas. And unfortunately, you know, in many cases, we just play follow the leader. Exactly right. That's Paul Ricker of The Swiss Report. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget, if you want more insights into the sort of stocks you should be thinking about buying, subscribe to The Switzer Report. switzerreport.com.au. See you on Monday night.